Blog Talk Radio. another edition of Theology Matters. I'm your host, Devin Palou, and so glad you could join us today. We have been uh, planning to do this show for quite some time, and uh, it seems like something always always came up, but uh, super excited to, to be doing this show today. We're going to have Dr. Phil Fernandez from the Institute of Biblical Defense with us, and we're going to be talking about his new book, The Fernandez Guide to apologetic methodology, methodologies, I should say. And uh, we've had uh, Dr. Fernandez on several times in the past. Uh, he's one of the guys that when I first first started really getting into apologetics um, on Brian Otten's site, their Apologetics 315, uh, they put a lot of Dr. Fernandez's uh, work up. And so working security as a security guard, uh, third shift, you know, I had nothing but time, and so uh, I, I listened to hours and hours and hours of Dr. Fernandez, so his voice is ingrained in my head, <laughs> but uh, we're going to be looking at just kind of the, the what is the different apologetic methodologies, uh, why is it important, what's some of the application, who are some of the, the good thinkers in the past that have uh, influenced and shaped our views. Uh, real quick before we bring him on, uh, if you have not liked our Facebook page yet, you can go to facebook.com slash theology matters with the Palouse. Again, that's facebook.com slash theology matters with the Palouse. And uh, there you will find uh, several shows that we've done. We've been doing this show for like five or six years, I think now, uh, quite a while. And have done a lot of shows. We've hosted a lot of debates with Roman Catholics, uh, recently did one with an Eastern Orthodox uh, versus Presbyterian, um, you know, atheism, Mormonism, um, you know, we've done a lot. We've got more 
in the future. We'd love to try and work out some stuff, uh, maybe do a, a debate with um, a Muslim and look at the doctrine of God. So we're always trying to, you know, think of some, some new shows on that to do. So uh, feel free to message us there if you have any ideas or for any feedback, critiques, whatever. Uh, and uh, we would love to see them. So without further ado, I'm going to uh, bring in our guest, Dr. Fernandez. Are you there? Yeah, sure am. Good to uh, good to have you join us, my friend. I know it's we, we've tried a few times, and I think I dropped the ball a couple times, and you were sick well, one I got, time. I, so. I got sick, and uh, and uh, in fact, I want to apologize ahead of time if I do any coughing during this uh, during this interview. So I'm still kind of all better, but it just everything's clearing up. So yeah, well, we're so glad uh, glad to have you join us. I know it's probably it's. It's a little earlier out there than it is where I'm at, so I appreciate you <clears throat> taking the time to get up with us and appreciate your wife sparing you <laughs> for a few yep. hours or a couple hours so we can pick your brain. So this issue of apologetic methodologies. Now, some people from the outset are probably going to think, man, what a boring show, what a boring topic. Yeah. Um, what is apologetic methodology, and you know why is it important? Why should Christians care about this? Yeah, it's uh, apologetic methodologies are just different ways to defend the faith, and too often we uh, hang out with one crowd and we all just defend the faith that way, as if it's the only way to defend the faith. And there's a lot of <clears throat> a lot of varieties uh, of you know different ways. Uh, to defend the faith, and well, the reason why it's important is that if we limit ourselves, I'm more eclectic in my approach. I'm probably what I would call a classical apologist um, who is open to, you know, I almost never heard an argument for God I didn't like, and um, and so sometimes if we limit ourselves to just a few arguments or one type of way to defend the faith, one method. Um, we might be dialoguing with a person, and if that method doesn't get through, uh, we've got no chance through the, the grace of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, of reaching them. Um, and so the more arsenal we get, uh, the more different methodologies that we're aware of, the more apologetics ammunition we could have when, when dialoguing with others. I, I really appreciate that, too. That's That's one of the things I've really appreciated about your work. I remember, was it 2015 you came to the national conference here in North Carolina and you, you did a talk on apologetic method? Yeah, it, it, it was either 2015 or 2014. I'm I'm not sure. And, you know, the funds are limited. I'd like to get out there every year, but uh, we have to, uh, we're on a tight budget. So, but uh, yeah, but otherwise, well, we I, this is my you. favorite conference out there. Yeah, we need to get you out there. You know, this conference, uh, I guess we'll do a quick little promo. The conference coming up this year may be one of the biggest ones they've ever done. Uh, they're actually going to have two – well, they're saying it's a dialogue, but uh, between Ken Ham and um, Richard Howe on yep. um, apologetic methodology, which is the yep. topic of our show. So, uh, Richard Howe's Howe. also – He's also going to be debating Dan Barker, right? who I debated back in February right. 2000. So that ought to be a lot of fun too. Yeah, that's that's right. And so you know, hey, they're doing a whole a whole thing just on this issue of apologetic method. Yep. And, and you know, Doctor Howe is a young Earth creationist, and and uh, yep. Ham obviously is a young Earth guy. But boy, the different approaches uh, are yep. really 
really easy to contrast. So Yeah, and I think well, presuppositional apologetics yeah, which it, it instead of arguing to God, you're only allowed to argue from God. And the damage that could do to the young earth creationism position is it really doesn't allow you to consistently provide evidence from science for God because you're right. supposed to argue from God. And uh, so I like uh, the late late doctors Henry Morris and Dwayne Gish who were uh, great scientists, PhDs in their scientific fields, brilliant thinkers, but they were also classical apologists. And so they were willing to argue from the universe to God and from scientific evidence to God, something that's kind of anathema with presuppositionals. But we'll talk about that more, I guess, a little later in the show. Yeah, that's good. And and maybe before we start, too, I I would like to clarify uh, that um, apologetic methodology goes beyond particular theological tradition as well. So, you know, I'm I'm Reformed, and it's always expected that because I'm Reformed, therefore I'm, you know, a, a presuppositionalist. No. And I'm not. And I'm not. Yep. And there's a yep. lot of, uh, you know, the early reformers were not. I look at somebody like a Sproul and somebody like yeah. a Gerstner. You know, I yeah, love defense. classical apologetics. Yeah, probably one of the greatest defenses of classical apologetics, which basically argues from philosophical and scientific evidences to God, and then after arguing for God's existence, then moves on to arguing. Um, for uh, Jesus as the, the risen Savior and God incarnate. And um, probably one of the greatest defenses of classical apologetics and refutations of presuppositionalism in print is uh, R.C. Sproul's work with uh, Gerstner and Lindsley. So here you get three uh, Reformed scholars, um, three Calvinists, and they're very cl- clearly in the classical uh, yeah. branch of apologetics. And then, then they're nerd. And that's not unique either. I mean, there, there are a lot of Reformed scholars who will use classical, the classical approach, or they're, or they're evidentialist, who they'll usually just start out with historical evidences and something along those lines. So uh, the idea, what we call the Reformed apologetics, is, is such a misnomer, because uh, if you're Reformed, it says nothing about how you actually do get down to defending the faith. Those yes. are made, you know by how you understand certain passages in Scripture and how you, you know, think through the issues and how the Holy Spirit works and things of that sort. So just because, in fact, you know what I'm, I'm also finding? We have a lot of presuppositionalists who are not Reformed. And oh, really? That's, that's kind of crazy. And then another thing we're having is I get a lot of young <clears throat> apologists who call themselves presuppositional, and then I'll hear them using the Kalam cosmological argument. And I have to remind them, you're not a presuppositional apologist. You know, with, with like Vantillian presuppositionalism, uh, pre- presuppositionalism, it's Van Til's way or the highway. With Gordon Clark, it's his presuppositional method or the highway. So if you're eclectic, if you like some presuppositional arguments, but you also use some classical arguments, at best you're eclectic, but you're not a, a true presuppositionalist. And so I encourage classical apologists um, to use presuppositional arguments, but at the same time, that if you're a classical apologist, you're a classical apologist. You're not a, a presuppositionalist just because you like some of the ammunition you get from them. 
Yeah, you know, it's 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 interesting. Uh you and me are both friends of uh Dr. Frank Turek and uh, he's a big proponent of the classical method. Um I don't know, have you have you been able to look at his new book Stealing from God yet? Um I just kind of glanced through it and uh okay. what I liked was uh you know, he he'll kind of uh um uh, use uh, some of C.S. Lewis's argument from reason, which is very close to presuppositional apologetics, plus uh, just the idea of stealing from God, the atheist to make his worldview work, has to borrow capital from the Christian yeah. worldview. Well, that's uh, that's Cornelius Van Til saying right there. So, right. so there's an example of a of definitely a classical apologist. I mean, you can't you can't fit the definition of a classical apologist any better than Frank Turek, yet. <laughs> The guy is acknowledging, hey, you know, we can also do the presuppositional thing. You know, there's, we don't have to, uh, you know, we can look at people and say, you know what, all the the moral decisions you're making, the fact that you trust what your reason is telling you, the fact that you think me, life has meaning, that doesn't make any sense unless you presuppose the existence of, of the God of the Bible. And mm-hmm. um, so, uh, so I don't think... Uh, Classical apologists should be should feel limited, um, right? At the same time, so so another if somebody uses eighty five percent presuppositional arguments and fifteen percent classical arguments, technically they're not a presuppositionalist because again Van Til is his transcendental presuppositionalism or nothing with Gordon Clark early early Gordon Clark it was dogmatic presuppositionalism or nothing scriptural presuppositionalism or nothing. And if you use a different apologetic approach, Van Til would, would really question the genuineness of your faith in Christ, as would Gordon Clark if you didn't use his approach. In fact, Gordon wow. Clark and Van Til came very close close to uh, damning each other to hell. And uh, Van Til blocked Gordon Clark's uh, ordination uh, to, wow. to one of the uh, uh, Presbyterian... Uh, 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 branches there, so uh, so I think people there's some young guys that are using presupp- presuppositionalism in a using the term in a way that the presuppositionalism presuppositionalists haven't in the past because um, you know basically if you don't use presuppositionalism uh, if you don't argue from God to something else if you argue if anything else is your first premise that's tantamount to blasphemy and idolatry. And you're pretty much a Romanist. You're pretty much a Roman Catholic in the eyes of Van Til or Gordon Clark. You're into human autonomy. And um, so, you know, there's no... You cannot blend true presuppositionalism with other approaches and call yourself a presuppositionalist. That's interesting. Yeah, and, and it, well, even today, it's um, I've, I've noticed that within the apologetic method world, it's very uh, contentious. You know, um, I, I think that uh, I'm like you. I think we can learn so much from from presuppositionalists. You know, uh, I've let, let a, read a lot of uh, Ronald Nash and his yep. his stuff. He's a great thinker. You know, yeah. I, I think almost like a carpenter with the different tools on his tool belt. Yep. With the apologist, you know, there's yep. times you can really use that. Um, you know, stealing from God kind of yep. arguments to shut him yep. down. But I yeah, guess the, one of the thing is too is with Ronald Nash, people have to understand both Van Til and his old professor Gordon Clark, uh, both would not 
acknowledge Ronald Nash's approach as true presuppositionalism. Wow. And so that's actually kind of like Francis Schaeffer, Edward J. Carnell, John Frame. They're not really presuppositionalists. They're verificationalists. They open their uh, the Christian presupposition to verification, so they're actually hypothesis testing. They're saying Christianity wow. is the best explanation, and we're willing to put it to the test. Van Til and Gordon Clark would be uh, appalled at that. That's why Van Til scolded Francis Schaeffer, refused to go to his talk at Westminster when he was a visiting speaker, and then waited for him in another room, and then they escorted Schaefer after the lecture, said and told him the professor wants to talk to you, and Van Til for about forty-five minutes scolded Schaefer, and you wow. know Schaefer, being such a, a godly guy, said, "Thank you, professor. I, I my only regret is that we didn't record this. I would make it mandatory listening for uh, all my students at Labrie." And uh, so Schaefer was just a, a dynamite guy, but he himself was a verificationalist. And verification, see the presuppositionalists say you can only argue, you have to presuppose the triune God who revealed himself in the scriptures, and then you argue from God to anything else. To argue from anything to God is tantamount to uh, idolatry in their way of thinking. And uh, and that's actually actually a category mistake, because uh, um, epistemological priority does not equal metaphysical priority. What I mean by that is just because in our epistemology, and our knowledge, if you argue from our knowledge of the world to then our knowledge of God, just because we argued for the world first or from the world doesn't mean we're saying the world is more important than its creator. Now, metaphysical priority would say, you know, the world is more important than God. God only exists because the world exists. If the world didn't exist, God wouldn't exist. But no classical apologist is saying that. So that's what philosophers call a category mistake there. But what the verificationalist does is he'll presuppose the truth of the Christian worldview, but then he's willing to put it to the test. He finds some area of neutral ground where he can, or common ground where he can argue with the non-believer and say that the the uh, Christian explanation of reality is true, and the uh, non-Christian view of reality just does not pass the test. And I've, I've seen even today where, um, not so much on the classical side, though I understand that the evidential and the classical side can be, um, you know, uncharitable at times, but I hear a lot from the real kind of dogmatic presuppositionalists that um, if you don't do presuppositional apologetics, basically, if you if you start with evidence and etc., et then um, you know you're just uh, you're not doing biblical apologetics. That's the that's the kind of the fa- the favorite phase yeah. is presuppositionalism is biblical apologetics. Yeah. How do you respond yeah, to that claim? I have well, a long time. There's a lot of different ways. I mean, you can you could write a whole book on on refuting it, but <laughs> Um, and and and, and, um, and that's what Sproul did. Of course, Sproul, Gerstner, and Lindsley did it on, dis, did misunderstand Van Til um, a little bit because uh, they believe Van Til taught that in Romans one, um, God's revelation of nature doesn't get through to man. Van Til says no, it gets through to man. So anybody who's an atheist is a liar. He's suppressing that truth. And um, but 
but whatever the case, uh, so it's more of a moral blindness than it is a, an epistemological or a problem with our, our our knowledge and all. But, you know, I would just point out several things. You know, when, when Peter's preaching the the gospel, he always says that Jesus is the Messiah, and we know this because God raised him from the dead, and we're all witnesses of this. Go out throughout the book of Acts. He's always talking about we are eyewitnesses. We saw him risen from the dead. Jesus himself in John chapter 10 said, if you don't believe in my words, then believe because of my works. So yeah. he's basically saying, look, I'm giving you miracles as evidence for you to believe that I am who I, I am claiming to be. So even Jesus gave evidence uh, for Christianity. The apostles gave evidence for Christianity. And the idea that we shouldn't is just uh, is uh, rather arbitrary. Yeah, I, I I remember even instances with, you know, um, in Scripture, you think of John the Baptist when he's locked up and he's, you know, will, mm-hmm. you know, ask Jesus if he's the, you know, the Messiah or if he's the one to come or should we look for another? And Jesus responds by saying, well, yeah. tell him what you've seen, you know, the deaf yeah. hear and the blind see, the dead yeah. are raised. So exactly. guys, he was, wrote he, a, Yeah, yeah, he was saying John the Baptist was thinking, you know, Jesus... When is he going to start forming an army? Because the Jews were so caught up with Messiah as a military political conqueror. He's not even building an army. Is he really the one, uh, or should I wait for another? And God, and how did God confirm to John the Baptist that Jesus was the Messiah? He sent the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove upon Jesus, and a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. So God gave evidence that Jesus is the one. Now John is doubting. And Jesus tells his disciples, yeah, just look at the miracles I'm performing. John the Baptist is an expert on the book of Isaiah, and that's what it says that Messiah is going to do. So basically he's saying I'm the one, but he gave evidence for John the Baptist to believe in him. Yeah, and I think when when you – because I've had conversations where people will use – presuppositionalists will use the scriptures and say, well, nowhere in the Bible do you see, you know, the apostles giving the kalam or trying to prove God's existence. Wouldn't we say that, well, in that that culture you don't have – it's not like today where you have, like, the four horsemen and atheism – Rampant, yep. um, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't find in the Bible people uh, arguing against Mormons either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the uh, what you have here is atheism has only reigned uh, as the predominant worldview at two different times during the history of Western civilization. One of those times was the ancient Milesian school with Thales, and um, and it, you know the guys like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle said no, there's there's more than just a physical realm. There's a, an unseen spiritual realm as well where morality and absolute truth exist because uh, a, a materialistic view where only matter exists is always going to lead to a, a rejection of absolute morality and absolute truth and then total skepticism. And so um, so Greek philosophy won out against that uh, atheistic materialistic view and then it began to crop his head sometime after charles darwin darwin kind of helped the enlightenment rationalism got the ball rolling darwin gave it atheism some kind of scientific credibility so probably around the the 1900s probably the 20th century um atheism was the reigning worldview and i'm i'm now arguing that it no longer is now secularism is giving way to neo-paganism and that's why i think we need what i call paranormal apologetics and um 
And so we shouldn't just limit our argumentation to atheists. And by the way, I think that uh, Norman Geisler is correct, that presuppositionalism really is not derived from the Bible. Presuppositionalism is a reaction to post-Kantian skepticism. Immanuel Kant attacked the traditional arguments for God, as did David Hume, and there was uh, so much of a backing down, kind of a lack of testosterone among uh, Christian apologists, to where some said, okay, they're right, the traditional arguments don't work. And then they and they said, because it would, you have to presuppose God first. And if you presuppose God first, then everything falls into place. So it was kind of a cop-out position, really. And um, um, But when everything's said and done, it is so... You know, it basically was born out of enlightenment, a reaction to enlightenment, rationalistic thinking, so that it turns into a pretty good apologetic methodology for enlightenment rationalists. The problem is um, we're not frozen in time, and right. uh, presuppositionalists as well as classical apologists, if if 99% of our apologetic methodology and our apologetic ammunition is focused on refuting atheists. That's kind of strange because there's probably never been a time in the history of mankind where more than 10% of the world were atheists. Right. So we could basically miss out on the opportunity of defending the faith with 90% of people in the world by focusing all our attention on the atheists. And that's that's why I talk about things like paranormal apologetics uh, right. later on. Now, let me say this, too. The, re- the reason why I wrote this, the Fernandez Guide to Apologetic Methodologies, this this is, was the kind of research I did when I was working on my PhD. So, I'm an, and I've only been asked to speak on apologetic methodologies four or five times. By the way, I just did a course at, for Shepherd's Bible College on apologetic methodologies, about 30 lectures. I also have, of course, an intro to apologetics. So, so if people want to keep up to date on, you know, most of my stuff on Brian Auten's site, Apologetics 315, is about 20 years old. So if they want to keep up on some courses I taught in world religions, intro to philosophy, ethics, intro to apologetics, apologetic methodologies, uh, they could go to my instituteofbiblicaldefense.com. That's instituteofbiblicaldefense.com, and then click on sermon audio. And then when you get there, just click on all sermons, and then just do a search of apologetics or apologetic methodologies, and you'll get you'll get dozens of of current lectures were ideal uh, with this. and um, But whatever the case, I was really bummed. Okay, Steve Callen, great guy, great apologist. Yeah. Never met the guy. It would be an honor to meet him. But his book on five ways to defend the faith, the problem with that is he makes he takes three types of traditional apologists, classical apologists, uh, a, a, an evidentialist, and a uh, cumulative case apologist Paul Feinberg, and he acts like they're so like they're at war with each other when they're not. They're all they're brothers or second cousins. Then for presuppositionalism, he doesn't doesn't do Vantillian presuppositionalism or Gordon Clark presuppositionalism. He has John Frame represent Vantill. Well, Vantill said the only positive argument you can give is Vantill's transcendental argument, and the greatest refutation of the transcendental argument in print comes from John Frame, one of his former students. So he gets a guy who's really not even a presuppositionalist. That's why if John Frame calls himself a presuppositionalist of the heart, he uh, he's not really a presuppositionalist. He's actually a verificationalist. He 
does hypothesis testing with his worldview. So, so uh, true presuppositionalism isn't even represented there. And then, of course, he gets a, a gentleman to defend Alvin Planning as God as a properly basic belief, and that's pretty good. But it gives you the impression that there's only five approaches when true Vantillian presuppositionalism is not represented. Uh, the two different types, the early Clark and the later Clark's presuppositionalism isn't mentioned, as well as many others. And so what I did was, when I wrote this book, I came out with 17 different methods, 17 different ways to defend the faith. Wow. And, uh, and that gets complicated. And so what I think we ought to do, I propose in the last chapter, that we go back to the way Gordon Lewis, in his work, Testing Christianity's Truth Claims, and Bernard Ram, uh, in his Christian Evidences work, um, I propose we go back to that approach where instead of using a cookie-cutter approach and saying, okay, there's only five methods, let's force, let's take Walter Martin. Where do we fit him? Well, he doesn't fit anywhere because he's what I call a comparative religious apologist. So what these, what Gordon Lewis did and what Bernard Ram did, they looked at the apologist himself, gave an overview of his defense of the faith, and then categorized them. So it was a kind of a personalized uh, approach. And so what I do is I list 17 different ways to defend the faith, but in reality, if we look at a guy like Norman Geisler, we would say, well, Norman Geisler's a classical apologist. He argues for God first, then he argues for for Jesus. Um, But he's also somewhat of a combinationalist because he's also willing to use scientific evidences for God. He does some cultural apologetics and argues that the Christian worldview is what's best for society. He does some comparative religious apologetics where he'll refute non, non-Christian cults and non-Christian religions. Um, he'll even do some paranormal apologetics and deal with the, uh, the New Age movement. So I think the best way of handling it is looking at the individual apologist and then talking about all the different flavors in the way he defends the faith. That's very good. Um, and we let's do this. We'll take a we'll take a short uh, break, and what we'll, what we'll do is when we come back, we'll jump into this. There's a lot there. Uh, we could probably get two fill two shows uh, on this topic if you wanted, Doc. I don't know how busy you are, but um, yeah, we could we could find the time. We could make it work. Okay, let's do that. And what we'll do when we come back is we'll just start going over. Uh, some of these people and uh, look at the different apologetic methodologies. Again, folks, this is an important, um, it's an important show. You know, there's a lot of in-house debates. One thing that uh, I love about Doc and one thing that I really try myself to do is I want to be charitable. You know, I I don't want to misrepresent the other side. Um, I, I, you know, I love classical apologetics. It's just, you know, I've been trained at, at SES and I've sat under, guys like Dr. Geisler and, you know, people like, you know, uh, Dr. Fernandez and that. But I do see the value in several of the uh, presuppositional um, arguments. And so we want to be charitable. We want to be fair. Uh, A lot of times this type of of discussion, it's just dismissed with uh, just surface level insults and, uh, you know, comments about, well, this is the biblical way or, or, or whatever. We want to get deeper than that, uh, and we want to be charitable to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we're going to take a quick break. 
When we come back, we'll dive into uh, some more of these people that uh, Dr. Fernandez has written chapters on. Again, the name of the book is The Fernandez Guide to Apologetic Methodology. You can get it on uh, Institute for Biblical Defense or uh, probably Amazon, I would assume. If you want to call in, if you want to have a question uh, for Doc, the number to call is 760-542-3907. That's 760-542-3907. And we'll be back right after this. You're listening to the Ankerberg Minute with apologist and best-selling author, Dr. John Ankerberg. How can we know that God exists? Well, there are many arguments for the existence of God, but one of the most popular is known as the moral argument. The moral argument shares that every law needs a lawgiver, a personal being who is the source of our innate sense of right and wrong. Since moral laws do exist, such as not lying, stealing, or not to murder, there must be an original source for these morals. The Bible explains that God alone is holy, righteous, and morally perfect, and exactly fits the description of this moral lawgiver. As Paul said, God's righteousness endures forever. God alone is holy and serves as our source of perfection and standard of guidance for life. For additional resources on this topic, log on to johnankerberg.org. What is something that computers and humans have in common, which constantly needs upgrading in computers, but not in humans? The answer is software. You may not have realized you have software, but inside the nucleus of each of your cells, a program is written in the form of 3 billion DNA letters. Intelligent programmers write computer software, but what about living things? Evolutionists tell us that the information in the first living cell just appeared by itself with no intelligent input required. But is that possible? The answer is a resounding no. Even one of Australia's best-known scientists, Paul Davies, conceded that there is no known law of physics able to create information from nothing. And perhaps that's why, in a New Scientist article, he lamented, how did stupid atoms spontaneously write their own software? Nobody knows. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. Theology is inescapable. Not everybody's a professional theologian with a capital T, but we're all theologians in the lowercase t because we all have some view of who God is. And so fundamental to living and walking as a Christian is a clear understanding of the truth of God. All right, folks, and actually uh, with our church uh, that I am a pastor of, Holy Trinity Bible Chapel, starting June 3rd, uh, which is a Saturday morning at 9 a.m., and then every other Saturday after that, we're actually going to be doing a book study uh, through R.C. Sproul's book, Everyone's Theologian. Excellent book. It goes over, you know, pretty much all the categories and Systematic theology, it's not, you know, too terribly big. Uh, we wanted to be able to, to work through it probably with uh, by the end of the year, but covers things like uh, inerrancy, inspiration, uh, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, general revelation, special revelation, etc. So if you, um, you can, again, you can go to our, our Facebook page, Theology Matters with the Palouse, or uh, Holy Trinity um, 
Bible Chapel in Rock Hill is our church Facebook page. Shoot us a message if you're needing some information on that. And uh, my wife will be leading a women's study. Uh, same book, and she'll be doing that, I believe, on uh, Tuesday afternoons. Hers will be a weekly study, as to where ours is going to be every other week. But a great opportunity just to, to come and hang out and uh, and do some theology. So we'd love to have you join us with that. So we're, we're back here with Dr. Phil Fernandez, and we're looking at his book, The Fernandez Guide to Apologetic Methodology. He spent uh, about the first 35 minutes or so talking about why uh, this issue is important and just some of the distinctions that need to be made. Uh, and so now I think we're, we're ready to jump in and start looking at some of these different apologists and their different apologetic methods um, you know, Doc, if you're able to do another show, maybe next week or the week after, or whatever, let me know, and uh, you don't have to. That way, you don't have to rush through sure. <laughs> all of these guys. You can take your time and, and set it up. But um, chapter five, you have the apologetic methodology of of Norman Geisler. Maybe yeah. talk about Dr. Geisler for for a few minutes and just talk a little bit about his um, apologetic methodology. Sure, yeah. Dr. Geisler, of course, you know, he's a good friend of both of ours and uh, just uh, kind of the godfather of Christian apologetics, probably the um, probably the leading apologist from about 1975 to, to 2000, and then some of his disciples have have risen in prominence, and, and uh, so he probably shares that title right now. And uh, But Dr. Geisler is a classical apologist. He's a Thomist. He likes the teachings of of Thomas Aquinas, the philosophy at least, not the theology, but the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas. And uh, his apologetics work, Dr. Norman Geisler, is a must-read for all Christians. It's a tough read. You probably have to read it three or four times. But his work, Christian Apologetics, um, phenomenal work. Now, he broke it down and made it, simplified it, and I don't have enough faith to be an atheist with Frank Turek. I think Frank Turek was able to translate the brilliant philosophical thought of Norm Geisler for the common man. So that's, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I think it's all about a quarter of a million copies. So, I mean, it's it's doing pretty good. If I have one book to buy on apologetics, and you, you need you want to start somewhere, that's the place to start. But that's if you want to do graduate level of apologetics to see where Norman Geisler's coming from, probably the most thorough apologetic presentation from a classical apologist is his, uh, his uh, Christian apologetics. The first one-third of the book, he tries to argue, how do we find truth? How do we determine what is true? And uh, after finding the test for truth, the next one-third, he applies those tests, and he looks at different worldviews to see, well, then which is the true worldview? And he argues that theism is the true worldview, because it's actually undeniable. As a, as a Thomist, he's not arguing for logical necessity. He's arguing for existential necessity or actual undeniability. That if something finite, some limited being exists, then infinite being has to actually exist to ground the actual existence of finite beings. They cannot exist in their own power. And so he argues that theism, the belief in a personal creator God who can perform miracles, um, is the true worldview. And then the last one-third is, okay, 
of the main theistic religions, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, which is true. Well, now we got to look at history and see if the God who is there has actually communicated with us. And when you look at the pages of history, one guy sticks out like a sore thumb, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. And, um, and so through his, his teachings, his, his sinless life, his public ministry, his miracles, um, his rising from the dead and fulfilling Old Testament prophecies, we see that Jesus is the God who created the universe, has visited planet Earth, that Jesus is, is fully God and fully man, and therefore whatever he teaches is true, and he teaches us that the Bible, the Old Testament, is God's word without error, and he promised that his words, heaven and earth would pass away, but his words would not pass away, so that he promised us that the Holy Spirit would guide the apostles into all the truth and bring to the remembrance everything Jesus said and, and teach them things about the future. And so Jesus guaranteed that his authoritative witnesses, the apostles, would give us the New Testament revelation without error. And so, um, and so you start out with, you know, what is truth and how do we find truth to then, okay, a personal God exists, and then you go to historical evidences and you see that, that Jesus perfectly represents this personal God. And then from the teachings of scriptures, we even see the doctrine of the Trinity, that the one true God exists throughout all eternity as three equal persons. So Dr. Geisler is not only a good example of a classical apologist, but he takes a, a classical apologetics, um, he takes that approach to a level where there's no stone left uncovered. And so it's an amazing uh, work uh, in his Christian apologetics. Yeah, and, um, you know, as you had mentioned, Turk kind of does the same kind of thing. So it's kind of that approach of does does truth exist? Does God exist? Yeah. Um, are miracles possible? Is, is the New Testament reliable? So it's... Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's a... Turk's work with Geisler really breaks it down in... Uh, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist so that the, the the intelligent lay evangelical with no Bible college or seminary training can understand it. Now, having said that, you lose a little bit of the philosophical force of Geisler's arguments by breaking it down. So that's why I, I, rec you know, I recommend people read first, you know, read more basic books like my, my The Atheist Illusion. A Christian yes. uh, response to Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, or my No Other Gods, a defense of biblical Christianity. Read something basic. Uh, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Um, the quantity of evidence that's in that book is a, is amazing, but the, but it's broken down for the for the layperson. But then, if you want to get to graduate level work in classical apologetics, I'd really recommend uh, Dr. Geisler's Christian apologetics. Now, having said that, William Lane Craig. His uh, Reasonable Faith, which used to be an apologetics and introduction, but his work, Reasonable Faith, another great scholarly introduction, and then uh, J.P. Moreland, Scaling the Secular City. So those three really do a dynamite yeah. job uh, representing classical apologetics. And, um, and I would say that uh, Craig and Moreland's probably undergraduate level, but college-level textbooks and many lay Intelligent lay evangelicals can read on a graduate level, let alone undergraduate level. And um, but whatever the case, uh, I'd recommend those guys. Stuart Hackett's another good guy. I mean, Stuart Hackett got the whole ball rolling with his work, The Resurrection of Theism. And um, 
and uh, he he kind of responds to Immanuel Kant, and um, Kant said we can know reality as it appears to us, but not reality as it is, because the categories of the mind through the categories of the mind we interpret uh, nature uh, and reality, but we don't know that the categories of the mind help us to rightly interpret nature. So right. we know reality as it appears, so it's not reality as it is. Well, uh, Stuart Hackett argues, well, wait a minute here. Maybe the categories of our mind, since we share this with all human beings, maybe they were placed in our minds to give us uh, a real understanding about the world. And um, and so he ends up building on that and, and bringing back uh, classical apologetics. And for me, the Stuart Hackett response to Immanuel Kant is far superior to the presuppositional Vantillian and Clarkian approach. Rather than bow before Immanuel Kant and say, yeah, he's right, all the uh, classical arguments have failed, um, Stuart Hackett says, wait a minute, I think um, I think Immanuel Kant got something wrong, and um, uh, I think we can know reality as it is. By the way, the statement we cannot... We can know reality as it appears to us, but not reality as it is. Hegel asked the question, well, is that a statement about reality? Yeah. So, so the, the Kantian wall, the Kantian dilemma there is itself self-refuting. So, right. um, so I, don't think, I don't think we need to genuflect before Immanuel Kant, put our tail between the legs and retreat. I think we we can say, no, no, wait a minute, uh, Mr. Kant. I think the, the classical arguments still work. And by the way, your whole philosophical system is self-refuting right at, a, at its foundation. And um, and so I like that with uh, Stuart Hackett. He said this, there's a resurrection of theism. Many, Christ, many um, philosophers are now turning to theism, belief in God, recognizing that that offers the best explanation about what's going on. The traditional arguments are making a comeback. And so when he wrote his book, The Resurrection of Theism, that kind of sounded the alarm that uh, there's a new kid on the block. And the new kid is the same kid that used to be around for for millennia. And he's back, and uh, and he's back, and he's in your face. And uh, the arguments for God's existence are much more powerful than the failed arguments against his existence. That's good, yeah. Uh, what, what other book on that, too, maybe, um, that would be a good intro is uh, Dr. Crotice's book, uh, Christian Apologetics. It's a big one. Mm-hmm. I actually got to review that for the SES Journal. Um, have you have you got a chance to go through that? Yeah, yeah, and, and most times when I get, like, it's really weird, too, because I'm going to call it an introductory textbook, which is what... Grotheis would call it, but Dr. Grotheis is a good friend of mine. We we see each other once every twenty years, but we're good friends. And um, and enough for when in Colorado he was giving a lecture, and I came in late and I sat down and he glanced over at me and then he took a second look and he said, "Phil, is that you?" And right in the middle of his lecture, and I said, "Yeah." And he said, "How long has it been? Twenty years?" And I said, "Yeah, about that." And he said, "Well, well how you doing? I'm doing." So we had a conversation. Then he went back to lecturing. <laughs> and everybody knows this is Dr. Douglas Grotheis. I mean, this guy yeah. walks on water in, <laughs> in apologetics academia, and nobody knows who the heck I am. 
So the rest of the lecture, nobody was looking at him. They were all staring at me, wondering, who, who is this guy? You know, and, and all it is is Dr. Grotheis. Doesn't for, he doesn't forget his friends. But, yeah. but you know, he, I don't know if it's a 600-page book or something. So so when when I say an introductory textbook, I mean a thorough introductory yeah. textbook that if you have a Ph.D. in apologetics, it's going to take you three weeks to read it. I mean, so it's, yeah. you know, he covers all the bases. And there are some... And I haven't, you know, read it cover to cover. I'm kind of reading at a, a more advanced level, so sometimes you miss the works that your buddies are working on. And because uh, we're trying to reach real human beings, you know, we just we don't want to just talk to each other, which so often yeah. happens in academia. And um, but I'm hearing more and more solid apologists saying, yeah, um, Geisler, Craig, Moreland, they did a great job and all, but you want one one textbook to go to. For undergraduates, or maybe even on the graduate level, uh, go with uh, Douglas Grotheis's work. And uh, now, with Douglas Grotheis, his claim to fame was in the 1980s, before we even knew what the New Age movement was. He was already writing unmasking the New Age movement and refuting it. So wow. this guy has has been about 20, 25 years ahead of his time. So I'm actually grateful that he decided to step backwards in time. And just give a good thorough introduction yeah. to apologetics. And um, he's also a very humble classical apologist, and I like that about him. That he's not claiming, you know, though he knows that God exists with absolute certainty um, because of his experience with God and his walk with Jesus, you know, and he loves the Lord and all. Um, he's not claiming, I'm going to prove God's existence with absolute certainty. You know, he's going to take a mild, humble approach and say, hey, look, man, the evidence for God is so much stronger than any supposed evidence against him that, you know, you read Grotheis' works and you realize um, you got to deny an awful lot of truth uh, to ignore the, the God who created this universe. So, yeah, the Dr. Grotheis' book is an outstanding book. Uh, yeah. Again, I've only spot read it. I've got it in my library with another 50 or 60 books that I want to get to. And um, but his work in the field is just just off the charts. He's uh, definitely he's, a scholar. He's actually, scholar. Yeah, he's actually a reformed. He's a reformed guy as well. Um, yeah, I had to yeah, bring that sure up is. just to show that you know again that it's oh yes right you yeah. know, um, denomination or or whatever doesn't determine your apologetic yeah. method. So, but uh, I yeah. love you know Dr. Geisler as you brought that up. A couple times, me and my wife actually, when I was sick in the hospital, um, he gave us the opportunity to um, edit the new ver, the new edition of the of the Christian Apologetics, and so that's, wow. that's got a special place in my heart. Needless to oh, say, oh yeah. Well, he he also <laughs> at the International Society of Christian Apologetics, I'm kind of a board member at large, and it's it's kind of it's the academic. Uh, institution that is really staying true to 1970s in our, um, uh, evangelicalism, where we're not giving on inerrancy. And right. he liked a few papers that I presented on Jesus studies and the New Testament and the, the, the current watering down of biblical inerrancy. So he asked me to contribute to vital issues in the inerrancy debate. And they put uh, uh, three papers that I wrote in that book and um, and then named me as an associate editor. So that's, for me, for those who are outside the apologetics world, what that is is 
that's like uh, a, a king, the king of one of the kings of apologetics, throwing a throwing a bone to one of the apologetic dogs under the table, and I, and I just, you know, I was just really really blessed to be be a part of this this present battle for the Bible. But that's the kind of guy he is. He's, you know, he he is a little gruff. His personality kind of pushes some people away, but there's a real loving heart there, and. Um, and he's he's trying to build a legacy, and he knows he's not going to be around forever. He's like uh, about 85 years old now, and so he likes taking young apologists like like me and you under his wings. And if he sees some some talent or some work that we've done that needs to get out there, you know, he's going he, he he's got so many things on his plate, but he'll find a way. To say, hey, you know what? People need to hear about this Fernandez guy. Uh, hey, you know what? The Palous can do an excellent work editing this. And um, and so Norman Geisler is very very loyal uh, yes. to his people, and um, trees is real good. So and, and and that's that's really helpful because uh, you know um, if uh, if apologists say it's all about me, I'm the man, the buck stops here, then when they go to be with the Lord, there's nothing left. And so I like yeah. it's like look, the kingdom of God is bigger than me. And we got to keep this fight going hundreds of years after I, I go to be with the Lord, and so I want to pass on the torch to, to younger apologists and uh, and Amen. so uh, yeah. And your your buddy Bill Roach also contributed to yeah. that as well as co-authoring "Defending Inerrancy" with Dr. Geisler and David Farnell, my favorite New Testament scholar at a master's uh, seminary, and then Joe Holden from Veritaso. So yeah, vital issues in the inerrancy debate. Really good book. They lowered the price to thirty-five bucks um, from about sixty-four. So, so people need yeah. to pick that up uh, uh, if they want to get a get a hold of me. Um, you know, we can we can cut that price in half too. So, but uh, oh, well, but whatever. We'll have to talk whatever. Again after this. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Very good. Well, I'll, yeah. For you, I, I haven't sent you a complimentary copy yet. None of the uh, vital issues. I've got the okay. uh, your um, your apologetic okay. methodology is good. Okay. Yeah. Well, what I'll do then, uh, I'll get your uh, address and uh, on Facebook, and then we'll uh, we'll mail you a uh, complimentary copy there. Oh man, that would be awesome. I appreciate that. All right. Well, uh, I'll tell you what. I'd be interested too. Number this the I think chapter six with William Lane Craig. So I, I would just be interested. How would you? And I'll let you just kind of talk a little bit about Craig and and that. But uh, I'd also be interested in how or if you would be able to distinguish the methodology between Craig and uh, and a Dr. Geisler. And if if also if you if you could maybe even a Sproul. I know he's not in your in the book, but maybe just with those three guys that are classical, but all seem to have a maybe a little different view um i'll I'll hand that to you yeah well and, and the thing is too is that you know a lot of people say 17 different apologetic methodologies boy this fernandez is a nut well it, it could be worse if i start dividing up classical apologists um you know that 17 can become 35 real quick and so i i don't differentiate between their approaches in the book but but the biggest difference between like Sproul and Geisler and that of uh uh guys like William Lane Craig or JP Moreland, generally speaking, um uh Geisler 
and Sproul are Thomist. So they start in the world of the senses um, for their argumentation, and um, and they're they're very Thomistic. They follow Thomas Aquinas, and um, and their epistemology is that man starts life as a blank slate, and that uh, through sense perception, the receptive mind begins to collect data, and we're able to abstract rational truth from uh, our sense. Uh, data sense experience whereas William Lane Craig and and JP Moreland especially JP Moreland so 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 Geisler and Sproul tend to be more Thomistic and Aquinas was Aristotelian so they follow more Aristotle he's the philosopher that's pointing down the philosopher that's pointing up in that famous painting is Plato and um and so he starts with the world of the of ideas and things of that sort and and Saint Augustine kind of based his philosophical thought on that so JP Moreland and William Lane Craig a little were m- more on the platonic augustinian side than uh Geisler and Sproul who are more on the Thomistic Aristotelian side at the same time Moreland is much much closer to Plato and Augustine than uh, than um, Craig. There's, 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 you know, talking about uh, uh, universals and stuff like that. Craig seems to be moving a, away from the Platonic way of looking at things, whereas J.P. Moreland and then there's another guy. I think his name is Smith. <coughs> At uh, at Biola's Talbot School of of uh, theology that are uh, much more Platonic. So so there, there are some epistemological differences, differences in the way they believe man learns and man knows. But in the end, you're still going to get arguments for God's existence first, and then from there, um, they're going to get into historical evidences. Another difference because Aquinas because uh, uh, Geisler is Thomistic. He would favor the cosmological argument from existential causality, which means the, he's looking for a cause for the continuing existence of finite beings. And the only and that tells, shows us that if finite beings actually exist, then infinite being must exist to ground the continuing existence of finite beings. So <clears throat> it's kind of a cause for our continuing existence. Whereas uh, Craig and Moreland, uh, without rejecting that argument, favor the Kalam cosmological argument where you argue from the beginning of the universe. Now, having said that, Geisler in his work with Turek is willing to, to use the Kalam cosmological argument, even though Thomas Aquinas was totally opposed to it. And the reason why Aquinas opposed it Aquinas did not believe that you could philosophically prove that the universe had a beginning, and that's because his philosophical mentor, Aristotle, believed in an eternal universe. Now, Aquinas believed the universe had a beginning, but Aquinas would claim we find that out when we read Genesis 1-1, that it's a truth of faith, not a truth of reason, uh, that we accept God's revelation that he created the universe. So... um, Aquinas would not argue from the beginning of the universe to the universe needing a cause, 
whereas someone like a contemporary of Aquinas St. Bonaventure did. And um, so Moreland and Craig are in that camp. At the same time, now Geisler has, Geisler's kind of willing to use, to argue even outside the Thomistic box, if need be, to lead people to Christ. But technically, that's not really part of his essential defense. R.C. Sproul, who's a Thomist, liked the ontological argument. That's another thing that Thomas Aquinas would find anathema. And, wow. um, you know, and uh, so uh, Sproul, Gerstner, and Lindsley, it, it's kind of, uh, I would say Geisler, Sproul, Gerstner, and Lindsley are, are Thomist, you know, uh, they're followers of Aquinas' light. So they're, okay. they're willing to, to make some moves that Aquinas would never concede. And um, whereas uh, um, I think Moreland and Craig are less tied down to one specific approach. Now let me say this, though. With, with Geisler, you know, we're not Roman Catholics, but with Geisler and Sproul being tied down to Aquinas um, a lot more than... Um, uh, Moreland and Craig, it, it does cut off a lot of speculating outside the classical Christian position, uh, outside that box. And so you'll find Craig and Moreland speculating about things that uh, Geisler and um, um, Sproul would not. Like, for instance, um, Craig's given up on divine simplicity. Um, right. That God is His attributes. Um, there, uh, Craig doesn't believe that God exists outside time. He used to exist outside of time, but once He created, now He exists in time. And so, there's some of the classical. Um, right. you know, you talk about like Doug, Douglas. Yeah, Douglas Grotheis puts God existing in everlasting time rather than existing outside time and eternity. So, so there are some advantages to sticking to a system that will not allow you to leave the classical approach. And, 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 you know, some would say, well, we need to question that classical approach and this and that, but I think that we're, we may be opening up Pandora's box if we're not real careful here. And, uh, and so, uh, but whatever the case, yeah, there are some differences, but if I were to, you know, give them different classifications, I mean, you could, you could take a whole different round. Say, I'm going to classify apologetic methodologies by the, epistemological starting point of each of the apologies. Well, if I did that, um, Geisler and Sproul would be in a different category from Craig and Moreland because they would have a different starting point and right. uh, a different epistemology. So if we ever got to that degree, I mean, we could be talking 30, 40, 50 approaches. And, um, but I, so I think, again, the answer to the whole solution is look at the wider picture, the at least 17 different approaches, and then let's look at each individual Christian apologist and let him speak for himself uh, as to how we would characterize his methodology. Very good. I appreciate you doing that because that was that was some of the questions that I had had, and I I hadn't thought about the whole uh, differences there with Aristotle and Plato, and that's kind of probably what drives some of that. So very good. Um, did you? We've talked a little bit about Moreland. Did you have? more to say about his method or did you want to go to C.S. Lewis next or, or well, uh... well let me just say about Moreland um, <clears throat> here's a classical apologist but 
um, all of a sudden you start reading his scale in a secular city, and you find him using arguments that nobody else uses. And I, I think that we need to commend J.P. Moreland for doing that, is that it, while he's a classical apologist, he also says, hey, you know, I'm going to do some thinking outside the box, and I've got an argument for God's existence, you know, an argument for the non-material soul. And and so uh, and then he does a lot with uh, meaning and life and stuff. So, so I mean, J.P. Moreland will take... Um, areas of debate and dialogue that philosophers have had even outside of Christianity and they'll say, you know what? Um, I think this points to God, so I'm going to bring this into my apologetic uh, package. And um, and so, when you read Scaling the Secular City, if, if you don't, if you read all these books we mentioned, you don't read Scaling the Secular City, you're going to lose a whole lot of apologetic ammunition uh, because J.P. Moreland is such an original thinker. In some areas, and by the way, he's a tremendously humble guy. I asked him about, you know, where does he fit with uh, with William Lane Craig? How do they match up? And he he stretched his hand as high up as he could go, and he said, "Craig's up here." And then he put his hand down around waist high and said, "I'm over here." And I said, "Oh, you're just being humble." And he said, "No." He said, "I'm a guy with with just above average intelligence who just." works. I'm a blue collar guy. I work real hard. I study real hard. He wow. said uh he, he said he said Craig is a genius. And um and uh, you know the thing is too is when I was around him I thought, man, this guy's gonna think I'm a I'm a loser, you know, comparing me to him and he kept apologizing to me because I'm a pastor and he kept reminding me that he had helped plant like a dozen churches. And wow. so here's one of the world's most brilliant philosophers, Christian or non-Christian, and yet his heart is with the local church. And um, and so J.P. Moreland would uh, would basically he he he's a world-class philosopher and apologist. He's famous, and he basically looks at the pastor of a local church. Uh, he looks up to them and says, "Man, that's where it's at," you know. And so he knows he has a role to play in, in, in the kingdom, but um, he knows that the local church was Jesus' idea, and he holds that in tremendously high regard. Out, out of all the Christian apologists I've met, probably him and Geisler have more respect for the local church pastor and the local church ministry than any other philosophers that I that that I that I've met, it's just just off the charts. But uh, that's why you know wow. people can never get to meet these guys. You know, I hadn't <clears throat> seen Craig in five years, and he asked me how my wife Kathy's back was doing. I felt so. He said I've been praying for. Her. I felt so convicted. I had to go back, to, got out all my William Lane Craig books, and started reading <laughs> through them until I could find his wife's name. His wife's name is Jan, and because wow. I felt so guilty that the famous guy remembered the the name the the name of the wife of the unfamous guy. And I thought, man, at least I could do is start praying for his wife. And, um, so, um, but, uh, wow. but yeah, these, these guys are great, but, but Moreland, yeah, he's got, there's some, some unique stuff to him with C.S. Lewis. Um, not, he, he's more of a verificationalist than he is a classical apologist. Even and the crazy thing is almost all the verificationalists, have come out of presuppositionalism, and they built a halfway house between, you know, the classical apologist, you could argue from something to God. The presuppositionalist says, no, that's against the law. You can only argue from God. 
to something. The verificationalist says, well, we'll argue from God, but we'll test it like a hypothesis. Okay? And okay. Uh, so C.S. Lewis is like that, but he didn't come out of the presuppositional camp. He's just a he's just a self. He, what he is is a real humble classical apologist that he talks about his apologetics as kind of we find the key that now unlocks the door to to our understanding of reality. It's kind of like finding the missing piece in the puzzle. And uh, but he's got a powerful moral argument for God's existence, uh, arguing from from morality to God as the moral lawgiver. But he, my favorite argument of his for God is the uh, uh, argument from reason, that if we believe what our reason is telling us, that presupposes that our reason has a rational cause. So if our reason just evolved from matter and space and time and chance, then our reason has a non-rational basis. We have no reason to trust in our reason. But if we were created in the image of a rational God, then we can trust our reason. So the fact that atheists trust their reason when they believe that there's no God shows that what Cornelius Van Til said is correct. They're living on borrowed capital from the Christian worldview. Uh, then C.S. Lewis will use like the trilemma that Jesus is either either the Lord or he's a liar or he's a lunatic. And he argues with the claims that Jesus made, he didn't give us the option that he's just merely a great man. And so C.S. Lewis argues that Jesus is God. Um, then he uses narrative apologetics, where in the Chronicles of Narnia and, and some of his other fictional work, he realizes some people will not listen to a rational argument, but if you tell them a story, you got their attention. And so yeah. how many, he, he, he probably led more people to Christ through Chronicles of Narnia than he did through his philosophical apologetic works. And... Wow. Um, and um, and then his screw tape letters gives us some insight into what demons are thinking about and how how demons are trying to destroy uh, the work of Christ in the world and the and and our walks with the Lord and um, so uh, so with C.S. Lewis we you know we see uh, you know the narrative apologetics the a little kind of a a, a mild form of classical apologetics, but he's mostly a verificationalist. And um, and then there's even a little testimonial apologetics, the fact that this guy was in academia most of his adult life and then leaves atheism for Christianity while in his 40s. Now, if that's not a testimony, how, you know, kind of an Oxford scholar comes to Christ in his 40s, if that's not a testimony, I don't know what is. But for some people, testimonial apologetics is the most powerful uh form of of apologetics even though it it's has the the lead is more experiential than it is rational doesn't have a lot of rational force a lot of people won't listen to rational arguments but if you tell them how Jesus changed their life all of a sudden you've got their interest so i've got a chapter yeah. of testimonial apologetics in the book you're right a lot seems seems like a lot more people are would be uh, I guess it just depends on the person, but they're they're more convinced with the kind of the testimonial than sitting down and trying to figure yeah. out a you know a, a syllogism or something you know. Yeah, and that's just what Blaise Pascal with his psychological apologetics, he understood that man is a rational being, but he's more than a rational being, and most of the major decisions we make in life, we we chose, we did, decided on something other than reason, you know the will, the emotions. Um, our desires, 
and then we sneak in reason through the back door and try to defend what we already believe based on non-rational reasons. So, uh, so Blaise Pascal understood that as well, that, uh, that we just cannot treat humans like Rene Descartes did as merely rational beings, period. You know, humans are much more complex than that. Right. Yeah, and Lewis is, uh, he's got, like you said, he's got a lot of um, fiction uh, and nonfiction, more of the, the, theological work. So his writings have really, uh, I guess, contributed a lot to the. Yeah, and if, if people go to, uh, you know, Institute of Biblical Defense.com, click on the sermon audio button, and uh, and then do a search for C.S. Lewis. We've got, I've got two. There's been over a thousand people have listened to him, but two discussions that I had with Matt Coom, one of my assistants at the Institute of Biblical Defense, on um, uh, C.S. Lewis, and I've read all of C.S. Lewis's philosophical works. I don't read fiction. I always tell people if I have another life to live, that one would be creative. And um, whereas Matt Coombe really specializes in the fictional works, in fact, he's working on a Ph.D. degree right now through Liberty University. He's working on his his dissertation, and he's arguing that Jesus is kind of the ultimate superhero. And um, he's saying there's like five or six profound things I want to say right now, but he doesn't have anything copywritten in print, so I can't let the cat out of the bag. But it's it's just amazing where. Jesus is, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, Clark Kent, you just don't expect Clark Kent to be Superman. And when Jesus walked around, um, we saw no majesty in him. We just thought he was a regular blue-collar carpenter, just a hard worker. And um, and then he died on the cross for our sins and bodily rose from the dead, and now he sits at the Father's right hand. So, uh, but uh, he takes the C.S. Lewis approach and the Tolkien approach, uh, Matt Coombe does, where he sees that God has written the gospel in outline form in our hearts. So our ability to tell stories is really the gospel story. And if we tell it well, it sounds a lot like the gospel. If we tell our stories in a lousy manner, it doesn't sound quite as much like the gospel. But uh, but he kind of he kind of argues that the gospel story is not the greatest story ever told. It's the only story. And so all other stories are either good or bad based on how close they come to the the only story, and that is that uh, God was manifested in the flesh and uh, died for our sins and rose from the dead to conquer death for us. So, and He's coming back. So, hey man, very good stuff. I appreciate you sharing that. That's uh, it's an interesting way to look at it. Had not looked at it like that before with uh, the stories. Um, chapter nine, uh, you have a piece on Stuart Hackard. Uh, he, so he's probably, yeah. he's in my circles, maybe not as well known. But uh, tell us yeah. a little bit about who who Stuart Hackard is and, and some of his works. Uh, yeah. Real, real yeah, quick, was, um, sure. For those uh, wanting to call in, uh, the number is seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two three nine. Oh seven, you give us a call. We'll go ahead and put you on here with Doctor Phil Fernandez. But uh, go ahead, Doc. Yeah, with Stuart Hackett, we talked about him a little earlier, and he was the guy that got the ball rolling. I think in the 1950s, he ended up uh, <coughs> teaching at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and he wrote the Resurrection of Theism: how how theism, the belief in a personal Creator God who can perform miracles, 
um, that uh, a lot more and more philosophers were jumping into that camp. And so he wrote The Resurrection of Theism. And then uh, about 20 years later, he wrote, finished his apologetic with not only arguments for God, but then also arguments for uh, uh, Christianity. And um, But he was a real interesting guy. Norman Geisler has tremendous respect for him. They work together side by side at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And it's it's difficult to say where the apologetics, evangelical apologetics movement would be today if it were not for Stuart Hackett. Um, he he was boldly going where no man of his generation had gone before, and uh, and so um, and I mean you know you you had your Bernard Rams and all, but you just uh, in the philosophical you know. Uh, for a, a trained philosopher, trained, uh, I think he got his PhD at Syracuse University in philosophy. Uh, for a trained philosopher to argue, um, you know, give an apologetic for Christianity was unheard of at that time. And so he was kind of the forerunner of the Norman Geislers and the William Lane Craigs and the J.P. Moreland. So. And. Um... I, I might have missed that, but did you say he had written a couple of books? Yeah, yeah. He he wrote the Resurrection of Theism, okay, and that really got the the ball rolling. And then after that, I think he something uh, something about Christianity's truth claims, uh, defense of Christianity's truth claims. I don't remember the exact title, but uh, um, so he's uh, I'm trying to look at my book right now and see if I can find the title of the other book, but. Uh, and so he, where he does give uh, his basic uh, Christian apologetics as opposed to just arguing for theism, and um, but he was definitely a he was definitely a trailblazer. Yeah, you know, it was the resurrection of theism in 1957. Wow! So this shows how far back it was like 20 years before Geisler uh, was establishing himself as an apologist, and then in 1984, Baker Bookhouse. Uh, published uh, the resurrection of the Christian revelation claim and um but his 1957 work that set the stage he was the one that said that um Immanuel Kant he re- kind of refuted Immanuel Kant and argued that um um the categories of the mind do help us to rightly interpret the world outside our minds so we can know reality as it is because uh God exists and uh and so he makes uh makes a powerful case for uh for the existence of God and then later on in the nineteen eighties he also presented evidence, other evidence. The crazy thing is is his his field of expertise was Eastern philosophy. Wow. And uh so uh, and I think he wrote on that subject but uh but uh but he's just not as well known for that. So here is a guy in the nineteen fifties realizing that Eastern philosophy was going to have, and Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism were going to have a big impact on America. So even before the gurus were coming to town, uh, he, he saw this stuff coming. So he was a brilliant, brilliant thinker. Big heart. He was walk, would walk around on the campus. I think Dr. Geisler told me this, with a belt buckle with a marijuana plant on it. So they started getting complaints. And, um, and this is this probably in the 1970s. And they started getting complaints, and they told them, Stuart, we love you, and we know you love the Lord, but, you know, you're going to lose your job if you don't uh, stop wearing that belt. And he said, well, I'm not going to stop wearing it. 
And they said, why not? And he said, because my son, you know, is a Vietnam vet. And got all banged up and got all disenchanted with life in Vietnam. And he picked up a habit of smoking pot over there. But he, he wanted to get me a nice gift, and this is what he got me. And so out of my love for my son, I'm going to wear this belt belt buckle. I'm not taking it off. And so they thought, man, they didn't want to fire the guy. And, and of course, you know, Stuart Hackett is not a pot, is not a pot smoker. But uh, <laughs> what they did was they agreed that from then on he wore the belt buckle upside down. So nobody could tell. Unless you... Unless you picked up Stuart Hackett by his heels and held him upside down, you wouldn't know what it was. <laughs> but, but it just shows here, here this brilliant philosopher, you know, here this brilliant philosopher, uh, one of the greatest minds of of um, uh, the past 100 years. And when everything's said and done, he probably would, would rather see on his tombstone rather than seeing something like uh, he was one of the greatest minds of his day. He would rather see... Uh, you know something like oh how he loved his son and uh wow. and that that's you know we we got to speak the truth and defend the truth but you know as well as I do brother we got to do it in love and uh and somebody's uh, it is an amazing thing getting and I, I never met Stuart Hackett but just getting to meet and know you know JP Moreland William Lane Craig Norman Geisler Gary ha- Gary Habermas is off the charts so we, we do another interview we got to talk a lot about Gary but just seeing how these guys how much they love on people and how much they love the Lord and how much they love their families. Um, it, it, it shows you, you know, hey, this, this stuff is real. We're not playing games. Jesus is king, and uh, he, he's, he died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead and conquered death for us. He sits at the Father's right hand, and he's coming back, and this is real. And these guys know how to love people with the love of Jesus. So, Wow. <laughs> That's great. Uh, that is... That's a that is a great uh, a great testimony, and I've seen similar things. You know, when I when I came out of the hospital in 2011, you know, and wasn't able to work, and and uh, just just struggling. My poor wife, you know, working 40, 50 hours a week, you know, 11 bucks an hour, just struggling to make it, and yeah, yeah. you know, Geisler was one of the first ones, you know, there to help us out, and give us opportunities and um you know you don't you don't forget that you just you don't yeah. forget that frank turk he was uh probably one of the first ones at the wow. he, actually he was the first one at the hospital i didn't even know yeah. he knew who i was and yeah. there he was See, comforting yeah. my you wife know, frank, and, is, frank is good people and you know he's a jersey guy but yeah when you were going through that man you know i was reading the facebook post from your missus and it's like are we going to lose Devin? I mean, it was for for yeah. listeners if they didn't know you during that time, it was uh, it was scary. It was um, yeah. I mean, you know for a while they didn't know what was going on. Then when they figured out what was going on, they were even more nervous. And and um, but yeah, just to hear that you know these guys will come. But but I, I will say this about apologetics: if you're out there and you want to be, become famous, apologetics should be your last choice because. <laughs> Um, I left the conference in Missouri, and I was in the airport, me and my wife. My wife goes usually travels with me when her health is well enough. And we were going through the airport, and there I could see this elderly man wheeling his luggage, and no one noticed him. No, He just walked right by. Nobody, nobody stopped and said, you're a rock star, or this or that. And it was Norman Geisler. And I wow. told my wife, I said, this guy is one of the greatest living Christian apologist, um, 
he should be more famous than the most famous rock stars that are out there if truth matters to people. And the fact yeah. of the matter is, outside of a small circle of Christians who love apologetics, nobody even knows who he is. And uh, so, you know, and that, that's where a lot of times people will say, we can get world-class apologists and have a conference and then and advertise it, but people won't recognize their names, so 100 people might come. But yeah. then if we get, like, street apologists who really they just shout at people and their arguments are very weak and they're not well-read, but they're yeah. famous, we can get one of these guys and, and pack in 2,000 people just by, just by, you know, shouting his name a few times on a, on a radio commercial. And uh, yeah. so it, it, it's one of those, you know, prophets not recognizing his hometown. Um, not only is it hard work for these guys to write their books, it's hard work to read their books. And most Christians don't like hard work. So um, automatically, if you're going to go into apologetics, if you're going to be the most famous apologist alive, chances are most people won't know your name. I mean, Robbie Zacharias is about as big a name as it gets, but there are still a lot of Christians who don't even know who he is. But yeah. um, but but Robbie Zacharias has the utmost respect for the William Lane Craigs and the Norman Norman Geiser was his rabbi. And, right. Uh, and and these guys outside the world of apologetics, nobody even knows who they are. So uh, yeah, and and I'm going to more and more conferences where I speak, and the guy, other guys on the that are also speaking are like Geisler or Habermas or Craig, and and um, when I talk to the people, a lot of times the people don't even know who they are. I mean, in Missouri, one guy came up to me. I was talking to Jay Kirby Anderson and Norman Geisler. And a guy said, excuse me, are you Dr. Phil Fernandez? And I said, yeah. And he said, I recognize your voice. I listen to your uh, your, your uh, sermons on, on Revelation online. And, and he's treating me like I'm a rock star. And I said, uh, this is uh, Dr. Norman Geisler over here, and this is J. Kirby Anderson. And he said, oh, okay. And it was almost like he was wondering, who are they? So it, it's just amazing that, uh, um, you know, these guys – somehow, some way, are still flying under the radar, and it's not because of the lack of quality of their work. It's just because right. Christians Christians don't want to think. We don't want to think uh, think hard on the issues. And uh, so basically, if you're out there and you want to become famous um, within the Christian community, learn how to play the guitar. Don't do apologetics. You're not gonna yeah. you're not gonna get real famous doing this. So. Uh, or learn some word of faith theology. <laughs> you know, yo, Actually, don't do yeah, that. Then you, the, then you the pack them in. But, need. Then you pack them in, but I don't want to be standing next to you on a judgment day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, let's do this. Let's take a break real quick. And uh, we got about 30 minutes, folks. If you want to call in and talk to Dr. Fernandez, we're, we're discussing apologetic methodology. Uh, the number is 760-542-39. Oh seven. That's seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. We'll be right back. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. One Minute Apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Is science the only way to know something? Yeah, that seems to be a way that a lot of people assume uh, knowledge uh, comes forth, but it's really incorrect. First of all, we know that science isn't the only way to know something because science relies on logic and philosophy. So for example, if I were to tell you that um, all dogs have a tail and I have a dog, 
What do you know about my dog? It has a tail. If those premises are true, then the conclusion follows. Now, you don't know anything about my dogs, but if I say, all, let me qualify that, all my dogs have a tail, because some dogs may not. But if I say all my dogs have a tail and I have a dog, you know it has a tail. And my dog doesn't have a tail. Your dog doesn't have a tail. There you go. <laughs> it has a nub. It has a nub. <laughs> and, and that's probably on purpose. Uh, but so logic is one way we can know something. And science relies upon logic. Science can't work without logic. This is how we know if an experiment it proves the hypothesis or falsifies the hypothesis. True or false is does it match? Is it the same? Uh, and that's based on logic. So science owes a debt to philosophy and logic. Science also owes a debt to theology because theologically it was the Christians who said the world is orderly. Tomorrow the laws of nature will be the same as today. Therefore it is valuable for us to go and explore God's creation that an orderly, thoughtful, rational God would make certain laws in the universe and because of that we can find them out. And it is truly Christianity that began the boon of the technological revolution and the scientific revolution simply because we recognize, and by the way, the idea that lying on your uh, scientific results is wrong, those are moral judgments, those come out of Christianity, don't come out of science itself. Science can do certain things, okay? Science can clone a human being. They can tell you how to clone a human being. They can't tell you if you should. The only way you know that is by looking at something like theology. It's easy to fall into the trap of believing you're just another one in a billion because you don't have the ability to make an impact in a significant way. You convince yourself that your voice isn't loud enough and your uniqueness doesn't matter. But you're wrong. Think about God's greater plan. Step back and stand in awe of the detailed care he took to create the universe. God made this universe specifically for you. He created you for a purpose, on purpose. There is someone you know who needs to hear this message. Someone who might be questioning if their life holds any real meaning. What if you were able to play a part in opening that person's mind and eyes to understand their significance as a part of God's greater plan? Reasons to Believe wants to partner with you to share the hope that we have in God as our loving creator and savior. If you will commit to spreading this hope, we will send you a copy of Why the Universe is the Way It Is to give to that person in your life who is searching for truth. This book offers compelling answers to some of life's biggest questions and presents a tangible opportunity to spark science-faith conversations with even the most skeptical friends. Let's break through barriers of insignificance and begin living life with purpose. Request your copy now of Why the Universe is the Way It Is to share with a friend. With so many Christian resources on the web today, it's hard to know who to trust or even where to start. So we handpick the best content, biblical teaching, scripture reading, music, audiobooks, and more. Then we stream it directly to you. No searching, no downloading. Just press play. It's called RefNet, 24-hour Christian internet radio. Available now in the App Store and online. All right, and welcome back to Theology Matters with the Clues. And our guest is Dr. Phil Fernandez. We are looking at 
the Fernandez Guide to Apologetic Methodologies. And we're looking at some of the great thinkers in Christendom in the past and in the you, present. You know, Devin, I like to uh, just let me comment real quick on that. One yeah. of the commercials, I recognized the voice. It was old uh, Lenny Esposito, a That's good right. friend of mine. We speak once a year at the same conference and stuff. And but there's an example of a brilliant mind. I mean, he he loves the William Lane Craig approach, but he also deals with issues that uh, I don't think Craig has done with dealt with publicly. So very uh, a guy willing to think outside the box, brilliant thinker. And um, but you know, don't expect him to get famous anytime soon because he chose you know apologetics, but. But Lenny is a right. Lenny's a great guy, great mind, and it's just great to hear his voice there. Yeah, he's got a got a got a really good podcast as well. That uh, mm-hmm. I, I actually just kind of kind of found him by accident about uh, a year a year and a half ago, and have just really been impressed with his with his stuff. So I'll, well, I'll use him as a reference to get him on the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And and I uh, I tell people at conferences that we speak at that. You guys have the opportunity to see two of the greatest apologists who are at least half Italian and under five feet seven in height. And so <laughs> I'm sure we're, I'm sure with those designations, we're probably in the top ten out there. So we're we're kind of proud of that. There you go. Chapter uh, ten. You have the cumulative case of apologetics of uh, Paul Feinberg. So talk a minute, what is cumulative case apologetics? And uh, tell us a little bit about Paul Feinberg. Okay, Paul Feinberg, he went to be with the Lord about a decade ago and just a great thinker. Him and his him and his brother, his, their father was brilliant, at, was taught at Talbot, uh, Charles Feinberg. And then it was John and Paul Feinberg. And... Um, I met them in San Francisco in 1995 at the meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society, the national meeting, and um, I see all these guys dressed in suits looking looking like philosophers, and then I see two guys look like refrigerator repairmen. They had flannel shirts and blue jeans, and they had these big uh, supermarket paper bags with all their food in it. I guess to save money, they were just going to eat the sandwiches that they made rather than waste money on going out to eat. And I thought, who are these guys, you know? They're just down-to-earth guys. And then, But then they were calling William Lane Craig Bill. So I said, uh-oh, these guys are high up on the food chain here. And uh, and uh, it turned out to be Paul and, uh, and John Feinberg. And they're just brilliant guys. Every time I wanted to ask a question, I'd raise my hand. And, you know, William Lane Craig presented a paper, so I raised my hand. And he was just about to call on me, and Paul Feinberg said, he didn't even have to raise his hand. I thought, whoa, this guy's up on the food chain. And he said, <laughs> well, Bill, the way I see it, and and it was just like, okay, i got to find out who these guys are. And then I found out they were the Feinbergs, but brilliant guys. But the main thing about the cumulative case, um, I don't think we have time to get into the specifics of his, but the cumulative case, I'll talk about that and combinationalism, because a lot of people confuse the two. The cumulative case means if you're going to make a case for God, you're not going to put all your eggs in one basket. You're going to use several different arguments, several different pieces of evidence, okay? And then if you're going to argue for Jesus' resurrection, you're not going to put all your eggs in one basket. You're going to use a cumulative case so that uh, 
with each case that you're making. You know, the, the, the objection to it is the, the Norman Geisler leaky bucket, that if you have a leaky bucket and it doesn't hold water, no matter how many leaky buckets you have, they still don't hold water. Yeah, but what if what if your arguments are good arguments that are more probably true than the alternative, uh, than what you're arguing against, and what if the holes are higher up on the bucket? So, I mean, what if each bucket holds like um, one quarter to three quarters of, wa- of it is filled with water, and the hole is above that, then if you're using probabilistic arguments, the more of these arguments, the evidence begins to accumulate. And um, so the cumulative case would say, okay, I'm going to argue for God's existence. I'm going to use lots of different arguments, lots of different evidences. I'm not going to put all my eggs in one basket. If I'm going to argue for Jesus' resurrection, I'm going to use lots of different arguments. I'm going to build, build a cumulative case. So that's cumulative case apologetics. Um, Paul Feinberg, you want to read about it in, in Steve Cowan's work, Five Views on Apologetics. Um, uh, he, he's the one who represents the cumulative case view. But um, combinationalism, though, on the other hand, um, that's when it, it's not just using uh, different arguments for God and different arguments for Jesus. Combinationalism will combine different methodologies. Okay. So combinationalism, like Norman Geisler, will use the classical methodology, but it'll also use scientific apologetics and cultural apologetics. C.S. Lewis is a verificationalist, but it'll also use narrative uh, apologetics. And uh, Josh McDowell is an evidentialist. He starts out with historical evidences for, um, for Jesus and for Christianity, but he's also willing to share his testimony, testimonial apologetics. He's done a lot of cultural apologetics, and he's done some uh, comparative religious apologetics. So just keep in mind, the cumulative case is one method that uses a lot of different arguments. Combinationalism, though, will 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 use three or four um, different methodologies. And so that's okay. how you draw the distinction between those two. Okay, uh, that's that does that does help. So, classical apologists then would would definitely be more combinationalists, right? Or, or I'm sorry, cumulative uh, case um, in that they use a lot of different arguments. Is that is that right? Um, uh, sometimes uh, there are some classical apologists that will just kind of basically um, they've got their primary argument, and it might be a cosmological argument, arguing for God as the cause of the universe or the uh, cause of the continuing existence of the universe. Um, And they might put so much emphasis in their primary argument that they might not automatically be uh, a cumulative case guy. Whereas a cumulative case guy, um, when I debated Dr. Michael Martin of Boston University back in 1997, I used the cumulative case where I argued that we're going to look at like nine different aspects of human experience, and I'm going to argue that in each of these these common aspects of human experience, it's more reasonable to believe in God than it is uh, to be an atheist. And um, so it's kind of like you don't have to give equal weight to each argument, but basically what you're saying is there's just no no one of my arguments that, that just totally settles the issue. 
And um, and if you're like me, and I think Paul Feinberg would be the same way, it's not due to lack of strength, intellectual strength of the argument. It's just recognizing that people, um, an argument that might work for some people might not work for for others. And so we okay. just don't put all our eggs in one basket. So I would I would not say that that classical apologists are automatically cumulative case uh, apologists. Um, a cumulative case guy will say, uh, um, you know, you ask him, how do you know God exists? I say, well, I've got five different reasons why I believe God exists. Uh, one is the beginning of the universe. From nothing, nothing comes. So something outside the universe had to bring it into existence, and I think God's the best explanation there. Also, the design in the universe. When we find uh, all the complexity and the design and the order in the universe, um, we see that there had to be an intelligent designer, but also the morality in the universe. You know, when 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 somebody starts arguing such a way, you know, that if somebody responds, um, well, you know, I think uh, I don't believe in absolute morality, so I reject your argument. The guy's response would be. Well, we can debate that issue, but keep in mind that's just one slice of my argument here. Um, right. You haven't even mentioned how the universe could come into existence totally out of nothing, totally without a cause. You haven't addressed the design in the universe. You haven't addressed the validity of human reason. You haven't addressed uh, meaning in life, the fact that we all live like life is meaningful. If we didn't, we'd all be committing suicide. I mean, so, um, so the cumulative case guy is... Uh, you know, if you turn to Norman Geisler and you said that I reject Thomas Aquinas' argument for God based on existential causality, you know, arguing for God's existence, uh, that it's actually undeniable that God exists because uh, if finite beings exist, the infinite being must exist to ground their continuing existence. If you say I reject that argument he has to go back and defend that argument because that's his strongest argument uh, for God. And uh, whereas the cumulative case guy, he might say, no, I, I gave you uh, uh, seven or eight different pieces of evidence for God. You're only addressing two or three. I can keep my mouth shut and I still win the day. And uh, but, um, but whatever the case... Uh, now there are some classical apologists that um, that will use a cumulative case. A good case in point is David Clark and his dialogical apologetics. He's a classical apologist, but he's very humble in that, and he likes to use a cumulative case. So he brings them both together, and um, and then he basically says that as you dialogue with people. Use a person-centered apologetic so that if you think certain arguments will work well with somebody and others won't, use the ones that you think you're going to work well. So he, he allows the person, he gets to know the person, he builds relationships with people, and allows the person to dictate how his uh, apologetic argumentation will take form. And so, that, so a dialogical apologist like uh, David Clark is actually a... A mild, humble, classical apologist um, who's willing to use uh, uh, to build a cumulative case, uh, but it's all person-centered, and so the, whoever he's dialoguing with is going to is going to have uh, a lot to do with how he's going to argue the case for Christianity. 
Okay, very good. Appreciate that uh, explanation. Um, let's. Uh, you have uh, the next chapter. There is on Josh McDowell and kind of evidential apologetics. For those who may not be real familiar with Josh McDowell, tell us a little bit about him and uh, evidential apologetics. Yeah, I got to just meet with uh, McDowell and Sean McDowell. He spoke at a conference in, in my area, and it was really funny just joking around with him. So I got pictures of Facebook of Josh McDowell punching me and, <laughs> and me and Sean fighting. And so it's really funny to see you know, these big wigs in the apologetics movement that they're actually just regular guys who like to have fun every now and then. But, uh, yeah, Josh McDowell, just a loving guy. You just can't, you know, within, you talk to him for two minutes and then he just gives you a big hug. He just thinks, man, I love this guy, you know, and, and um, he's just a great guy. But his uh, evidence that demands a verdict in the late 1970s, he uh, gives a historical case uh, historical evidence, and that's what evidentialism is. The classical apologist is a one-two approach. You argue for God first, and then historical evidence is second. An evidentialist says, well, I'm not opposed. Most evidentialists, like John Warwick Montgomery, Gary Habermas, Josh McDowell, they're not opposed to evidence for God, but they start writing history. And okay. I, I think one of the things there is that most people you talk to believe in the existence of some type of God. So we could waste an awful lot of time arguing for God when the only piece of people that would disagree with that premise are probably teaching philosophy at some university. But um, but whatever the case, uh, guys like Gary Habermas with his minimal facts case for the resurrection or Josh McDowell giving evidence for New Testament reliability and Jesus' deity and resurrection and... and um, John Warwick Montgomery, he was arguing in the 1960s, even before C.S. Lewis died. He was a young Lutheran apologist who was providing historical evidence for Jesus, and he's got a, one of his PhDs is in history, I think from the University of Chicago. So, uh, so yeah. you know, brilliant scholar, but, but the evidentialists will say, we're, we're willing to start with historical evidences and sometimes even end there. And so they argue that the, the New Testament is reliable, the Old Testament is reliable. Jesus really did claim to be God, and he proved he's God by the miracles he performed, by rising from the dead and fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. And then, therefore, since Jesus is God, whatever he teaches is true, and that gives us the doctrine of the Trinity and biblical inspiration and inerrancy and things of that sort. But even in Josh McDowell's evidence that demands a verdict, he ends up giving his testimony at the end of the book, just a remarkable testimony of how Jesus saved him and changed his life. And it was a, through apologetics that he got saved. So he's an, an evidentialist, but he's also willing to use uh, testimonial apologetics. Then, if you read more of his works, like The New Tolerance, he does cultural apologetics, where he argues that the prosperity and the freedoms that we enjoy are based upon... Uh, the, the Christian worldview, and we reject the Judeo-Christian worldview, the biblical worldview. Society, we're going to lose our freedoms, we're going to lose our prosperity, and um, and so he does a great job with cultural apologetics. He shows that the new tolerance, traditional tolerance, was uh, freedom of religion and freedom of speech. The new tolerance says all beliefs are equally true, all behaviors equally wholesome. Oh, by the way, if you disagree with us, we can't tolerate you. 
That's the new tolerance. Can't tolerate anybody who disagrees with them. That's traditionally what we've called intolerance. We see that now when an election doesn't go their way. They protest. They get violent. They hurt people. They blow up buildings. They break things. They block traffic. And all in the name of tolerance. And uh, right. somebody's going to speak on their campus and, and doesn't agree with their politically correct views, um, they'll protest and get violent so the person can't speak. So uh, all in the name of tolerance, they can't tolerate anybody who disagrees with them. Well, in the 1990s, Josh McDowell wrote The New Tolerance, where he dealt with that. He also uh, co-authored with Don Stewart a handbook of today's religions, so he deals with comparative religious apologetics, where he refutes non-Christian religions and non-Christian cults, and, and then deals with the world of the occult, which is what I call paranormal apologetics. So even though he's primarily an evidentialist, um, you will see a lot of combinationalism in uh, Josh McDowell, since he uses historical evidences, he's an evidentialist, um, but then he's also willing to combine other approaches like cultural apologetics and uh, comparative religious and testimonial apologetics. So he's a good example uh, of that. Uh, what would you say maybe are maybe just some of the diff- uh, quick differences between the classical and evidential? Because they get mixed up a lot. And, yeah, um, and what are some of the critiques maybe against evidential? Yeah, and it's, uh, to, to be honest with you, some some of the critiques are just overrated because there, there's more of a difference. We usually call all presuppositionalists by one title, yet the the arguments that went on between Van Til and Clark, they would never speak at the same conference together. These guys were totally opposed to each other. It was like, I'm Luke Skywalker and you're Darth Vader. And... Um, so yet we act like presupposition is all one approach. When Van Til hated Clark's approach, Clark hated Van Til's approach. Clark had two different approaches, and then a whole lot of guys we call presuppositionalists are actually verificationalists. They're not true uh, presuppositionalists. But when we handle classical apologetics and evidential apologetics, we act like they're so diametrically opposed. Yeah, Gary Habermas will hang out with William Lane Craig. They're buddies. And then right. when they were when they were debating, um, uh, I think it was uh, Habermas asked Craig, or he quoted from Craig, where Craig said, "You don't have to argue for God first, and then go to historical evidences. There are some occasions where you could probably get right into historical evidences." And so Habermas quoted and said, "Do you agree with this statement?" And um, because you made it, and um, so. So basically, a classical apologist argues for God first and then goes into historical evidences. The evidentialist says, no, I'm going to start with historical apologetics, but I'm not opposed for uh, for evidence for God. In fact, Jesus' resurrection confirms Jesus' worldview, and so that probably that could be used as an evidence for God. Now, I would agree with uh, the objection that... Uh, Jesus' resurrection in a non-theistic universe would just be a weird event. So I, I, I think the classical apologist is right. Establish God's existence first, then go to historical evidences. But whatever the case, their views, they're, they're actually like second cousins, and they get along with each other. And yeah. uh, so it's not as 
not as drastic of a difference as as people. It's just kind of a preference. And um, now let me say this though too. A classical apologist, William Lane Craig, if he's talking with you on an airplane, you're sitting down next to him, and he finds out you're a Muslim, he is not going to give you arguments for God's existence. Because he knows you already believe that God exists. You already believe in absolute truth. You already believe in absolute morality. You already believe in the possibility of miracles. So William Lane Craig is going to sound like an evidentialist. He's going to get right into historical evidences. And and so it doesn't mean that he's not really a classical apologist. He's really a classical apologist, but he loves people, and he sees in, in the evidential approach, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of good that's there. So so they're not quite as uh, distinct. I like to sometimes classify classical and evidential apologetics as traditional apologetics. They just put them under under one banner, so they can be distinct. Um, but they work together so well that they're not quite as they're not opposites basically they're they'll work hand in hand but then when if we just call all presuppositional approaches by the same label and just leave it at that it creates the illusion that uh Clark and Van Til were buddies and that uh and that they liked Schaefer's approach too and it's like no man we're talking we're talking like four different approaches for for just three guys and uh, because the early Clark evolved into a uh a a different type of apologetic. Maybe the maybe the second interview we have we can go into some of the intricacies of presuppositional apologetics yeah, and verificationalism and then the properly basic belief of Alvin Plantinga. Yep, yep, that was my exact thoughts on that. So what we'll do now, just we've only got a couple minutes left, uh, instead of jumping into that, we'll we'll just uh, if you're good doing another show we'll We'll set that up and do another show. Um, tell us uh, again, uh, people wanting to, to get a hold of you or buy buy your books. Where can they get your books and and uh, what books? Maybe give us a list of some of the books you've written and where they can find sure. them. Sure. Uh, best place to go would be Amazon.com. The chances of finding my books in a bookstore, I'm not you know one of the top tier apologists. Um, so uh, my the publishing houses that publish my works are not not the well-known publishing houses and stuff like that. So uh, I would just go to Amazon.com, look up my name. It's Phil Fernandez. Fernandez is F-E-R-N-A-N-D-E-S. Phil Fernandez. You'll probably find three or four pages of books in there. And um, and so we've been talking about the Fernandez Guide to Apologetic Methodologies. We've been talking about what's in there. There's also The Atheist Delusion, A Christian Response to Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins. Uh, There's Hijacking the Historical Jesus, Answering Recent Attacks on the Jesus of the Bible. There's Contend Earnestly for the Faith, A Survey of Christian Apologetics. I also uh, wrote God, Government, and the Road to Tyranny, Christian View of Government and Morality, Uh, No Other Gods, A Defense of Biblical Christianity, and the God who sits enthroned, evidence for God's existence, and then um, uh, where I collaborated with uh, uh, Farnell, Geisler, Holden, Roach, uh, and the vital issues in the inerrancy debate. So uh, also wrote a chapter for the big argument um, for Master Books. They had me write the uh, <coughs> final chapter on the absurdity of life without God. So whatever the case, just uh, and, and then we have the lecture note series. I've got probably about 20 different lecture note booklets 
which is, has my notes, and I lecture from those notes when I teach college-level courses. Um, I'd also recommend people go to the Institute of BiblicalDefense.com, Institute of BiblicalDefense.com, click on the Sermon Audio button, and then um, you'll you'll get access to about 1,500 sermons, lectures, debates that I've done. We've got mostly streaming audio, but we do have some streaming video. You can click on all sermons, and then you can type in a topic, and you'll get a whole bunch of uh, lectures and sermons and debates that I've done on those topics. So Institute of BibleDefense.com, and then click on the Sermon Audio button. (coughs) You also, uh, if you want to donate to the Institute, there's a Donate button right there through PayPal. And um, so that's pretty much uh, best ways to uh, find out what's going on, what we're doing. I probably... We probably upload anywhere from 6 to 15 lectures or sermons each month uh, because I preach a sermon, you know, once a week. And then uh, the lectures that I do at Shepherd's Bible College, we usually try to upload those. And um, so you can you could take college-level courses in the Intro to Philosophy, Ethics, World Religions, Non-Christian Cults, uh, intro to apologetics, uh, apologetic methodologies, you know, all those college-level courses I've taught in uh, probably in the last two or three years, and um, sometimes up to 30, 30 to 33 lectures for the courses. But uh, So I really recommend people go to instituteofbibledefense.com. We've got Gabe Genorio out of uh, Texas. That's the webmaster for that. Pat Fisk also has philfernandez.com. You can get a lot of the, the same... Um, information there and my books are on amazon.com so but it's it's an honor for me to be able to interview you doc like i said uh, you know you were you were one of my and still are one of my heroes of the faith and listening to you working third shift and you know you to be able to interview you is such an honor for me so i just Thank you so anytime, much anytime, for all your work. Yeah, well, anytime Satan puts doubts in my head about whether I'm having any kind of impact, there's about 10 or 15 quote-unquote disciples that I think <laughs> of, apologists who are out there doing a great job that I've influenced at an earlier stage in their thought. And John Feeks yeah. out of Canada is one, but you out of North Carolina, you're you're another one. You're one of my my one of my top disciples as far as I'm concerned. Now, now, granted, you're probably more properly a Norman Geisler disciple, but but when everything's said and done, um, just to have played even a small role in your apologetics ministry and that of your wife is just uh, just off the charts a blessing to me. So when I have doubts, I, I think of people like you, and I say, no, the Lord's got to be working through me in some way, shape, or form. Look at Devin Palou. So I really appreciate uh-huh. the work you're doing, and it's an honor for me to be on the show. Thank you so much, Doc. We will. Uh, well, I'll shoot you an email when we get off, and uh, try and and uh, get another show on here within the next week or so, and give it give a part two. And then that's that's about four hours of uh, listening to Doc Doc about the uh, apologetic methodology. So thanks again, Doc. Tell your beautiful wife we said hello, and uh, we'll look forward to having you on again soon. All right. God bless you. Love you, man. Give your missus a hug and your your little girl who's calling the shots out there. Give her a hug for me, too. (laughs) We love you guys, too. Will do. God bless. God bless.
All right, for, folks, thanks for uh, tuning in and uh, listening. Dr. Fernandez, uh, as you guys can hear, is just uh, a wealth of information, just a, a great guy. You know, uh, you know, I, I've been able to know a lot of apologists, you know, with being at school and just, you know, in the conferences, et cetera. And uh, I'll tell you, Doc's one of those guys that, he not only knows it, you know, he he knows the information well, but man, he lives it. You can tell just by listening to it to him, uh, his heart for people, his his love for Christ, his love for uh, his fellow man, and that's the kind of people I want to be. That's the kind of people I want to be around. So, folks, thanks again. Tune in next week, another episode of Theology Matters. We're going to be looking at apologetic methodologies again. So until next time, God bless.